Hello. Hey, it's uh, it's Cassie. It's been a while. How have you been? Jeez, I haven't heard from you in forever. Um, I I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I let's see. Oh my gosh. Uh. It's been so long, I <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Um, <laughs> um yeah, me neither. So, hey there! I'm so glad you're here with us today. You're about to hear some art. I'd elaborate further, but I can't right now. There just isn't time. We have too much to catch up on. And speaking of, where have you been? McDonald's. Going home on the bus, passing a McDonald's out the window. It was started here. In Chicago? It was. Maybe. Can you imagine the first McDonald's? Maybe this McDonald's you are passing still has a little of the first McDonald's in it. Can you imagine it? Imagine this is the first McDonald's. The bus stops at a corner and your eyes soften. Your judgment wanes. It is the first McDonald's. What a beautiful thing it is. Imagine, warm food waits for you. It is both the illusion and embodiment of plenty. There are always more fries, fried in ever-flowing cooking oils, and waiting in their appropriate ergonomic packaging for you. Under lights, they seem to glow with all of the expectation of a pet lizard under a heating lamp, waiting to be fed. You walk into the doors and you may as well be home, but you aren't. You are short on time or cash or convenience, and you are right where you need to be, on the molten linoleum floor of the one and only, the very first, McDonald's. In the in-between, you need a fish sandwich and a box of fries and the teenager at the register blinks through her eye makeup and grates a whisper into the headset winding around her ears. Do they wear headsets? They do. For the drive-up window, and to whisper into the speakers, tiny speakers that play sweet nothings for the expectant packaged warm food lizards to hear, to boost their deep-fried morale. She calls a sandwich lizard to come to you after you pay. It is set in a limply oiled paper bag with 11 ketchup packets and fewer napkins. You take your comfort just barely above room temperature and looking nothing like on TV, but since this is the first McDonald's, their advertising is not yet strong, and you turn back to the door, exhaling your last breath there that has become laced with salt, sweat, and teenage tears, Exiting back to the cocooning private protection of your car or the park bench, where no one can touch you. The structure and transactions are unspeakably beautiful. 
because it is the only McDonald's and it is unique. A microscopic thrill, a cell vibration courses over your skin and you know you have done something unique. You are of this place and the McDonald's is of this place and you are inevitably linked in that way. You wave as you pass on the bus. It barely notices you. You never call. The Dream Funeral In a dream, you can't find a thing to wear to a funeral. A classmate from high school, her brother has died. He played in a shoegaze band whose CD was burned for you back in everybody's day. You had a grotesque crush on the idea of him, and now you need a black skirt for his funeral. You are flirting more lately. You are bending over backwards in bookstores and cafes to dredge up conversation on Ibsen's prose plays and guided by voices. You remember when you went to Oslo and you had the thought, I bet I am the only person in Norway listening to guided by voices right now. You were probably right, and you kept your hands in your pockets to keep from patting yourself on the back. You spent time talking to the fjord. You walked up the exterior of the opera house. You prayed and dashed and dined and wore black tights and winter boots and walked around the cemeteries. It was a dream, the kind where all the funerals stopped for a while and, having already happened, became reverent. You floated. You didn't have to find the right clothes to wear. You had stocked your backpack. Every person spoke better English than you, and you didn't make small talk. In a dream, you wake up concerned about your wardrobe from a previous evening spent worrying about the poison of clothing production. In a dream, you have nothing to wear, and you aren't naked, but you are caught between activities. In a dream, you are based on your waking life, where you are digging through your dresser, picking up the things that are never right. Pre-garbages. The clothing you don't wear. It's only a matter of time. The Impulse. You are sometimes a girlfriend and sometimes jealous, and these things are not necessarily correlated, but rather they are both recently muscles and pressures you are working to understand. You are up at odd hours, hot with the idea of poisonous relationships, finding examples in your own life that awake what had, until just recently, been an invisible seed of jealousy. You wonder about scrapping it all, back down to humility. You can't stand to stomach thoughts about the future. Time, hot on your heart, is the idea of not getting to, not deserving, not good enough, not yet, not you, that opens up the jealous wound. And you watch it bleed, and you put those ideas away in envelopes in the sock drawer of your mind, and you watch the wound scab over. Don't pick at that. And you haven't lost your truly ever. The Coda when I pass the McDonald's a week later on the same bus route, I see its sparkle reflected in myself. I remember the time it was the first McDonald's, my only. Now it is overtaken, insignificant in the grand commercial scheme and merely a pause on a corner between here and home.
Bianca, this is Marta. Hello, and I'm so sorry for calling you at three in the morning, but this is so important. You just have to know that frozen bananas suck. Never buy them. They're awful. They don't melt ever, and you have to go to so many lengths to get rid of them in your household. And it's just really upsetting, honestly. Don't make fun of me for this in the future. Just don't ever buy frozen bananas. You're such a dear heart. I have so many things I want to talk to you about. That's all. But frozen bananas, they're terrible. Goodbye, darling. <laughs> See you later. The five stages of breaking up, or when the other shoe drops. One. Denial. When the other shoe drops, as it inevitably will, acknowledge it. When she tells you she no longer feels the way she once did, avoid trying to convince her that she is wrong. Try taking a deep breath instead. Certainly she has her reasons. Maybe you expected too much. Maybe she lost her balance walking on your eggshells. Maybe that's how she fell from the pedestal you crafted for her from scratch. Two. Two. Anger. When she stops returning your phone calls, do not insist on dragging an explanation out of her silence. Do not look for a way to punish her. She owes you nothing that she cannot give you. Do not force an apology from her for the footprints on your backbone, for the calluses on her feet. Do not remind her of the nights her mind was a locked bedroom lined in yellow wallpaper. Do not remind her of how hard you tried to tear it down. Instead, Remind yourself that this was the risk you were willing to take. Do not tell your friends that the sex was bad anyway. 3. Depression When the other shoe drops, do not try to put it back on. It is marred, it has changed in the fall. When her love for you withers like a butterfly trapped inside a jar that you forgot to poke holes into, do not attempt to feed it alive. Bury it in the backyard. Mourn and pay your respects, but do not mark the grave. One morning over coffee, a mutual friend will let it slip that she is seeing someone new. Change the subject. Do not probe with questions. Do not feign nonchalance. Do not attempt indifference by sipping your fresh coffee. It is still hot. Her new girlfriend will be prettier than you, smarter than you, more fun than you. You will be convinced of this before ever having met her. Quiet the comparison as you wait for your coffee to cool. 4. Bargaining When the other shoe drops, do not try to convince yourself that it still fits. Do not change the natural arc of your foot to make it fit. When you do finally meet the new girlfriend, you will be wearing last week's dirty laundry with last night's makeup still stained on your eyelids. You won't be able to help but notice how effortless her smile is. You will wonder if she wakes up that beautiful. Avoid the temptation to learn everything about her. Stay away from any inclination to mimic her steady gait. Of course she walks easy, glides even. She is wearing the shoes you broke in. Five. Acceptance. When the other shoe drops, do not run to the nearest store. You do not need another pair just yet. Instead, reacquaint yourself with the bend of your heels, the valley of your soles, 
memorize the curvature of your toes. Press your naked feet against the pavement and let yourself sink. Allow yourself to linger if only for a while. I promise it is not so uncomfortable to be barefoot. Hello. Hey baby, it's me, I'm here. I'm here. I'm actually standing at the box, but... I'm here. Okay, <laughs> I'll buzz you up. <laughs> okay. There are men who drive buses in our neighborhood, large white buses with tinted windows. These men drive at night and stock city bus stops, picking up any soul willing to board. Ricky in math class says the people who board these buses get dropped off in purgatory. He can't read well though. I know that they get brought to a casino on the outskirts of town. It says so on the side of the bus. I don't know if purgatory exists. Mom says it doesn't and she's the best reader I know. Ricky believes in a lot of things Mom says are fake. For instance, Ricky says the buses are driven by ghosts. In his defense, the drivers do look like ghosts. They drive stone-faced, the task has left them lifeless, the hours have left them without human connection. There are many other ghosts in our neighborhood, working at the corner store, removing our trash, talking to themselves. Today was Ricky's birthday. Mom said I could go to his house after school. She gave me an extra few dollars to ride the bus home. It's only a few blocks, but Mom doesn't want me to walk alone at night. She also packed me an extra lunch. Mom got mad at Ricky's grandma last time I was at their house. They screamed at each other while I waited in the car. Mom yelled about animal rights and Ricky's grandma kept calling us hippies. The only reason Mom let me go to Ricky's tonight was because it's his birthday and I'm his only friend. Mom doesn't understand why I like Ricky so much. She says we're better than him and his grandma. The kids at school say his actual parents are serial killers and that he's a retard. That's why he's been held back twice. His grandma doesn't like when I'm over either. Once she slapped me in the face for leaving my shoes on in their house. It was the first time I'd ever been hit by an adult. Ricky says when I'm not around, she refers to me as the yoga boy. Ricky and I play well together, but no one sees that. Earlier in his room, we were playing spies like we always do. I snuck into the pillow fort we built, and he tackled me to the ground. The fort fell down around us. His face was close to mine, and I could feel the warmth of his breath. I'm not sure who initiated, but our tongues met, and then our lips, and then... His grandma opened the door and ripped the covers off of us, and she hit me real good in the face and tossed me against his bedroom door. And in one motion, she dragged me down the stairs, into my coat, and out the door. Small snowflakes are floating down from the sky, shimmering in the streetlights. My nose has just stopped bleeding and my right eye is throbbing. I've been crying and it's hard to say exactly why. 
Tears roll down my cheeks, freeze and fall. I look around. The Chicago winter night has left the street void of life. Only the ghosts are out. A big white casino bus pulls up to the stop I'm sitting alone under. I stop crying. The driver opens the door and stares down at me. I can feel heat coming out of the bus. Would you like a ride? He asks. I nod my head slowly. I board the bus and I'm never seen again. you back because I went through a little service area and I think I lost you but I don't know it sounded kind of suspicious because all of a sudden it was just like and then it ended with just a so I'm calling you because something might have happened to you and Doctor Who might have shown up in his parties and I don't know so I'm just leaving this voicemail and if he didn't, hopefully it's like a beacon of hope into time and space and he comes and rescues you. But anyway, I'm going to say goodbye now. Bye. One of my earlier memories in life is knowing exactly where I was when Princess Diana died. I was in the living room of my last house my parents lived in before our family moved down the block into my mother's dream home, which my father built on top of a church he tore down. The church had been vacant for a long time, and my dad is a home builder by profession, which makes it less weird, but I also saw a poltergeist as a child when I was homesick with a fever, and it's really stuck with me so it's always seemed like an ill-advised move to build a home on former religious grounds. Anyway, I was in the living room playing while one of my parents watched the news. The screen was showing the wreckage from her crash, with the ethereal mournful voiceovers of Chicagoland news anchors lamenting her passing, describing how millions would mourn her untimely death. I had no idea who Princess Diana was at the time, as I had just turned eight days before this event. In fact, as a child, I had a pretty strong prejudice against the English due to my Irish ancestry, so if I'd known she represented the British crown, maybe I would have been less affected. But I didn't, so I strongly remember walking over to our basement stairwell, sitting on the stairs, and weeping for the death of Princess Di. When I was 17, I babysat for a 10-year-old boy who loved to punch, kick, and bite. This was not my dream job, but it was a flexible position and my employer consistently kept the house stocked with mozzarella sticks, so I could deal with it. One night, I was getting off late and a classic Chicago snowstorm had started up, so my father came to pick me up at the end of my shift. He came inside to meet the child and his mother with traditional Irish parent politeness, then turned to me and said, Heath Ledger died today. No way, I exclaimed genuinely disbelieving him. Internet hoaxes were a thing by this time, and I didn't trust a guy who needed me to help him update his Facebook status to not get fooled like even I, an all-knowing teenager, had been before. I took his phone, 
back when it costs a lot of money to go online on a phone, and waited 30 to 45 seconds for the search results to load. It was true. I sat down in an oversized chair as my dad and I dealt with our shock in a near stranger's home. When James Gandolfini died, I was at home alone, sitting on my mattress in Logan Square, most likely eating a burrito I couldn't afford and drinking from a six-pack of cheap beer too late in the evening to ever justify either of those life choices. And I screamed out loud, No! I stayed up for hours checking the news results between episodes of whatever crappy reality TV show I was marathoning that particular week. I had never even seen his work. No Sopranos, not even Meet the Rileys. He was just someone I knew my dad liked as an actor and who also reminded me of my dad, physically, before my dad went on a low-carb diet and his hair went gray, but also in their gait, confident and friendly, but able to seriously fuck you up if need be. I woke up the next morning and cried. I was 23 years old. I don't consider myself much of a fame worshiper. There are artists in many fields that I admire, regardless of their celebrity status, and also pretty useless pop culture figureheads I have little to extreme interest in just for the hell of it. There have been few celebrities who I feel connected enough to mourn the deaths of deeply, because that feels very personal and complicated when imposed upon a commercialized representation of a human life I never directly interacted with. What I've come to realize is that these people represent for me the reality of mortality entering into my life through their associations. My brother died when I was six, so as an eight-year-old, to be upset over someone dying too young and tragically seems like an enactment of classic undergrad-level psychology to me as an adult. One of the only movies my entire family has ever been able to agree upon watching together on repeat since I was a child was A Knight's Tale, where Heath Ledger is a peasant who follows his dreams to becoming a knight by tricking the British. I don't think I can remember any family vacation where that movie wasn't put on to keep all of us kids quiet while my dad drove his car 14 hours to New Jersey, my original home state, where I spent my earliest years under two hours from where James Gandolfini was born and where my dad worked in waste management when I was a child. I remember Christmases where my uncles exchanged wrapped seasons of The Sopranos with one another, pointing out which episode they thought each would like the best. Part of those memories died little deaths for me on those days, when the people trapped behind the screens became real through tragedy. I felt like my childhood was so far away, knowing that the night my siblings and parents cheered for with me grew older and died. My father never seemed like someone who aged until his doppelganger had a surprising heart attack. Getting older means seeing your heroes die, and sometimes you remember right where you were when you felt like a member of your own personal history died too soon and too sad for you to feel okay about it. I don't want to use the classic JFK, death as a cultural touchstone for proximity to history. I want to be young again, where everyone you see and know, or feel like you know, and love, or feel something we as a public call love, will live forever and be there to bring you closer to one another. But at least someday, hopefully far in the future, when I die, I can meet Princess Diana, Heath Ledger, and James Gandolfini, and I have the perfect icebreaker. You wouldn't believe it, but I know exactly where I was when you died. Hi, Gary, dear. It's me. Um, you want to go ahead and call me back? Uh, that'd be great. I am watching 
And oh my god, I'm actually talking to you right now, and you just pulled up next to me. Oh my god. Yes, I'm talking to your phone. <laughs> I'll try to explain this moment. In the middle of a big country of polite words and accommodating faces, someone disguised like I am is talking to me today. Dark beacons in this room empty of ourselves, we melt into the wall by speaking about unmarked topics, referencing regular lives in this big country. He is unrecognized by me and he is perfectly acceptable, and he will soon walk away. But then he asks, What's your name? Bindu, right? Every word expectedly American until he hits me in the chest with my own name. The tip of his tongue is soft on the back of his teeth with the D. It's a hidden tongue his unchanged sing-song mother gave him to keep safe for her in these heavy streets, grazed with red chili peppers and kept sharp. The U straight, no detours. The sounds lobbed at me in the final seconds of our game, making it in before my windows close, breaking my house wide open. I've heard my given name spoken from this stranger's mouth. And it's the first time in months. And it's the last time for months. His lips accompany my name with the tiniest hint of a smile. His lips saying Bindu. They're saying, I know. I tell him he's right, that's me. <laughs> you found me, and no one does in these parts. I wonder how long it'll be before I hear my mother's tongue again. And yours? Dhruv. He gifts me a concussion of consonants, and I'm there to gift it back to him. Dhruv, it's no big deal, this intimacy. He nods. I'm here. Nice to meet you, Dhruv. We shake hands, pull on our white skins, and he walks away. Can't forget you, I don't want to, don't want to. Bianca. It's nice to finally meet you. You may remember me from such things as the beginning of this podcast. This is Speaking Of, a spoken word podcast for queer and trans artists and allies. Speaking Of is brought to you by Resonate, a recording project that aims to make the music world a more open place for LGBT voices. The kind readers who helped christen this debut episode are, in order of appearance, Emma Casey, Jade Carter, Taylor Peterson, Mar Curran, and Bindu Poruri. Special thanks to Kelsey Stuckett for the intro and to Jessica Marks, CBMC, Blood Hype, and Too Attached for their sweet, sweet tunes. Links to more of their work, which you should totally check out, can be found in the episode description. Hey, 
keep in touch. Until next time. I picked this shirt up literally off of my bedroom floor, but I'm wearing lipstick. And that is actually, in a sentence, my entire visual aesthetic.